We are at Parshat Bo, the third portion of the book of Exodus. And uh, you can find the um, Parsha on page 406. It's chapter 10 of Exodus. Why is it called Exodus? It's called Shmoth in Hebrew. Bob just asked the question, why is it called Exodus in English if it's called Shmot in Hebrew? which means name. And that's because the, the English were, the titles in English we use are derived from the Greek translation of the uh, Bible, the Septuagint. And there, the names assigned were names based on the theme of the book. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers, which is like numeroi or something in its original Greek, uh, which is the fourth book, and Deuteronomy. So Leviticus refers to the Levitic to the priests, the Levites, because the book of Leviticus is preoccupied with that subject, and Deuteronomy means the repetition of the law, because Moses repeats so much of the Torah, including and especially the Ten Commandments are repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, so that's how they got their titles. But the, the Hebrew names are from a different tradition, the tradition of assigning the name of a book by the first significant word in that narrative. So Breshit is the first word of the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis in Hebrew is known as Sefer Breshit, which means in the beginning. Um, and then the first word of uh, significance in Exodus is Ela Shmot. These are the names. So Shmot becomes the name of that book, and <clears throat> so on. And the weekly Torah portions also get their names that way. So if you look, just to complete that point, if you look on 406, and it says, Vayomer Adonai El Moshe, and the, the Eternal One said to Moses, None of those words are, are memorable enough to, be named, to have a portion named after them because they were get repeated hundreds of times. So, Bayomer spoke, Adonai, God, El, to Moshe, none of those would stuck. But Bo, come. That, that, that's a memorable phrase, so that becomes the Hebrew name of the portion. Just the word come? Come, Bo. Uh, and then it becomes a very fun and worthwhile project to just focus on the, the name of the Parsha because usually and probably always um, it, it, it says something about the whole portion. The teaching I learned about Bo, which says come or enter to Pharaoh. Um, this, so I wasn't going to talk about this, but it's a good one. Uh, why doesn't it say what it should say? Lech el paro. Lech means go to Pharaoh. Why does it say come to Pharaoh? And so the, the main teaching about that, which gets elaborated on a lot in, in, in various teachings, especially mystical teachings, uh, 
is that it implies that God is speaking to Moses from Pharaoh's place. So that God is there too. And all the ramifications that would, that, that God, it's, isn't that something? Yes. So, uh, um, the, there was a great teaching in the Zohar, which I, I, I learned with one of my teachers, that says, Boil Pharaoh, I'm there. You have to find me in Pharaoh. Wow. Right? Right, and it's like, oh, we're off on a we're off on a journey there, right? So, so that's the way that using the first word becomes a kind of a a, a door that opens into more explanations. And also, just explore the Pharaoh impulses in yourself. Exactly, Bo- come to the Pharaoh within yourself. That's how the mystical tradition treats it, because God is in there too, which is very deep. It means that your most your your own most hard-hearted errant uh, uh, behaviors originated in a holy spark, mm-hmm. right? So it's deep psycholo- psychological stuff that that somehow there was a yearning or a longing that got um, diverted or twisted or blocked that led to. So you have to therefore examine the darkness within you in order to find God. All from one word, wow. by the way. <laughs> and in your enemies. And in your enemies, but this one, this also yeah. in your enemies, because, and that also becomes a classic Jewish spiritual teaching. And when I say Jewish, it's because I mean we're doing it, but it doesn't mean it's like uniquely Jewish, uh, uh, which is that... Uh, Evil, which is represented by Amalek in the Jewish tradition, the people of Amalek who attack from the rear and take out the weak and uh, have are undeterred by any conscience or fear of God. That's Amalek. Uh, that's Haman. That's Hitler, who's considered to be Amalek in the Jewish teachings. Um, uh, on the one hand, it's an external evil that has to be resisted. On the other hand, uh, Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev particularly teaches that, and this is a classic Hasidic teaching, that whenever you witness something in someone else that you find to be evil, you have to search yourself for the part of you that might also harbor that impulse or desire or behavior so that you don't like make the world into this um, totally bifurcated, me good, you bad sort of affair but rather it's an opportunity to look within. So therefore, everything, everything we encounter is an opportunity to look within and to examine ourselves. Yeah. It's good stuff. So, this portion, on one hand, is, we, we, what's going to happen is, we're going to hear about the final Three plagues, uh, locusts, darkness, and the slaying of the firstborn. But the slaying of the firstborn is surrounded by explanations of how you're supposed to come, how you who are hearing this story 
are, or you who are experiencing this, are supposed to commemorate this event of our liberation. So, if we were going to ask, and, and so if we were going to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of all of this telling? It says so at the beginning of the portion, and then it gets repeated over and over again. So look at the very beginning. Then the Eternal One said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. See, our translator couldn't handle it. <laughs> right? Because our translator is trying to be literary. It doesn't make sense. Come to Pharaoh. So this is, we've encountered this so many times, and if you're newer at this, that's the, that, this translation, which has much to say for it in terms of its merit, most of the time is spiritually obtuse <laughs> in terms of trying to penetrate the Hebrew. Let us be confused, because that's what the Torah, the Torah is inviting us with its language to do that. That's how, the, that's how our rabbinic tradition mm -hmm. wants us to encounter the text. They don't shy away from these, uh, these apparent uh, inconsistencies or strange usages. They, they race towards them. Right? That's the Jewish interpretive tradition. So it's one of the unfortunate aspects of this very academic sort of a literary attempt that is the translation we have here. Go to Pharaoh, come to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his courtiers in order that I may display these my signs among them. So the reason it's all happening, the, 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 the uh, plain reason it's all happening, the presented reason, is that so that yod can display my, the, my signs among them and that you may recount in the hearing of your children and of your children's children, ulema'an tisaper, that you will tell the story. Sipur is a story, tisaper is to tell the story. Be'oznei, in the ears of your children and your children's children, uh, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I displayed my signs among them, in order that you may know that I am yod heh Okay, that is what the text... Now, this is problematic, right? It, uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's not, and on the other hand, it is. Uh, on the one hand, it's a story, and the purpose of this story is so that we will continue to tell the story, as we have done to this day. Right? We... That's how, that's how we transmit the, that's how we transmit being what it means to be a Jew to generation after generation. And yet the problematic part is God is setting all this up, the drama, the one plague, another plague, another, you know, and so is this God as, and I'm not asking a heretical question, I'm asking the kind of question that the commentaries ask. Wait, is this, a good, is this a good God? Is there some, and that's the question all of us ask when we just read the story. Wait a minute, what kind of God is this? Isn't there some other way to do this? Um, 
why are you making Pharaoh the bad guy? What, what, not, well, Pharaoh is already a bad guy. But here he's being set up. Mm-hmm. To show a lesson to everybody about what happens when you claim to be divine. And, the, and, and, and you know, and so it's not, so there's a point of escalating all of this, turning it into a real media circus, right? Just a giant, what would you call it today? Like, build the wall. God forbid, right. Um, well, you know, we can't, uh, you know, every week we can't ignore the behavior from uh, the, the White House as we contemplate uh, 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 this kind of hard-hearted, tyrannical behavior. Um, and in our telling, the, the God, the creator of the universe, is setting up high drama, ma- you know, just incredible, the most incredible fireworks of... Um, whether it's hail or locust, just everything, utter to bring this pharaoh to his knees in order, for a purpose, so that you will know, so that you will tell this to your children and your children's children. Mm-hmm. So uh, the purpose of the, the purpose, I like what you said before, it was really never thought of that. The purpose of the story is to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And that's, I love that. And the drama is there because a good story needs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So the purpose of the story is to tell the story. And this is where the Torah is is explicit and repetitive about this being the purpose. So that's what I was. That's what I was drawn to today. So let's look at. Uh, le- let me show you the other places where it says that's why this is all happening. So if you look, and then we'll read the text more closely, but if you look on page, at chapter 12, hi, welcome back. Hi, thank you. You can be closer if you want. Um, look at chapter 12, verse 26. That's on page 412, if you'd like. So, at the bottom of page 412. We're going to go back and reread all of this, but it says, it's the instructions of what to do on the Passover night. You shall observe this as an institution for all time, for you and your descendants, and when you enter the land that the Eternal will give you as promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this ritual? You shall say, this is the Passover sacrifice to the Eternal, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when smiting the Egyptians, but saved our houses. So, when your children ask you, we all know this as the theme of Passover, right? Uh, Then it gets repeated again, uh, 13... Chapter 13, verse 8, um, it's on page 416. We'll start with verse 6. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival of the eternal. Throughout the seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten. No leavened bread shall be found with you, and no leaven shall be found in all your territory. 
and you shall explain to your children on that day. The Hebrew word is a vihigadita. That's where the word Haggadah comes from. Vihigadita means you shall tell. You shall tell your children on that day. It is because of what the Eternal did for me when I went free from Egypt. And then it gets repeated again uh, in verse 14 on the same page. This is about offering the Passover sacrifice. And when in time to come a child of yours asks you, saying, what does this mean? You shall reply. It was with a mighty hand that the Eternal brought us out from Egypt, the house of bondage. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Viki hiksha faro, kashes hard or stubborn, like hard-hearted, to send, to let you go, let us go. The Eternal slew every male firstborn in the land of Egypt, of both the firstborn of both human and beast. Therefore, I sacrifice the Eternal every first male issue of the womb, but redeem every male firstborn from my children. And it shall be so; it shall be as a sign upon your hand and as a symbol on your forehead that with a mighty hand the Eternal freed us from Egypt. What's the sign upon our hand? Tefillin. And the symbol on our forehead. We we carry these these verses inside the tefillin. They're written on little scrolls inside the tefillin. So the purpose of the story is to remember and to tell it. Um, there's also one other place in Deuteronomy where Moses is repeating the story. You don't have to. And so who's sacrificing every firstborn? Who is the I? In chapter 13, where I just was? Therefore I sacrifice to the eternal. Oh, this is what. Um, what you're supposed to say. This is the pigeon head. Oh, yes. Um, you'll see that at, at, um, every Israelite head of household has to offer as a sacrifice the firstborn of his flock. But the firstborn of sons is redeemed so that, you, in other words, you pay money for, you offer money in, in place. Thank you. Yeah, sure. I'll just share this one other, uh, in chapter 13, in Deuteronomy 620, uh, It says, and when in time, so Moses is now repeating the story. When in time to come, your children ask you, what mean all these laws and rules that the eternal your God has, give, our God has given to us? You shall say to your children, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the eternal freed us from Egypt with a mighty hand, and wrought before our eyes marvelous and destructive signs and portents in Egypt against Pharaoh and all Pharaoh's household, and God freed us from there in order to take us and give us the land promised on oath to our ancestors. Um, and so it's just, you may be familiar with this, but it says four times when your child asks you, or you shall tell you, your child about it. And that in the Passover Haggadah becomes the four children, the four sons. And each one asks in a different way, excuse me, Um, let me just text home and say I can't talk right now. Oh, hello? 
Hi, darling. I'm busy right now. Can I call you later? Okay, I will. Bye. There. Sorry about that. Speaking of children. Um, so each one of the questions is asked in a slightly different way. Uh, what is the meaning of this? Or when, when the one who says, what are the, all the reasons for all these rules and observances? Of, that's considered to be the wise child. And you give them this full answer. When it says, what does this mean to you? The rabbis say, that's the wicked child who says, I'm not part of this. What's this mean to you? And this is how you respond to the child who has separated themselves from the community. And then it says, what is this? Maza. That's the, that's the simple child uh, who just sort of like is, you know, the, the little kid who just is ready for a story. And then the fourth time it says, you shall tell your children. It doesn't, there's no question. They say, well, that's the one who doesn't even know how to ask. And here's who addressed that. So the rabbis interpret the way the story is presented and its explicit purpose so that you will tell your children and your children's children. And they assume, in the classic rabbinic way, that uh, there are different ways to tell the story. That, and that you have to tell the story in a way that suits the listener. In other words, you can't just sit there and read every word in the Haggadah. Which, is, for some of us who've grown up with Passover, um, it's once again one of those classic um, uh, I just got it. classic human uh, default settings. <laughs> Here's the instruction. Tell this story to your children. Okay? Tell this story to my children. You know, it's like you know, that, that's no, it's, it's, it's a stage, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, um, it, what do you call it? It's a stage direction, it's, a, it's an instruction, it's pedagogical, it's like, and so many of us grew up, unfortunately, with rote recitals, like, which, you've heard me teach, teach about this before, again, is one of those colossal mis, misunderstandings of the uh, instructions in our, in our tradition. So the rabbis do not misunderstand this. And um, Passover of, you know, the Passover story is, is like the, the best example uh, of how the rabbis understand that Torah has multiple ways of being re, uh, retold. Uh, and that the purpose is to tell it in a way that it'll be received. So uh, the Passover Haggadah, the Passover, the, the telling of the Passover story, there's a whole tractate on it in the Talmud, and uh, its, its purpose is to, as I'm repeating myself now, its purpose is to tell the story in a way that will reach the, the person you're telling to so that they will 
No. So that's the explicit instruction in, in the Torah. So now let's... Um, the, so the Hebrew word, and, and, and the rabbis are also clear that the telling is supposed to elicit questions. And the word in the Talmud for questions is kushia. 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 The arba kushiot. It's not the arba... It's an interesting term, because a kushia is a problem. A problem... It's not a problem in like, I have a problem. It's a problematic question. It's like, why do we do this? It's not two, what's two plus two, right? That's not a kushia. Um, uh, so, and kushia comes from the same word as kashe in Hebrew. Kashe means hard or difficult, as in Pharaoh's heart being hard. In this case, it means a, 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 a dip, difficulty. So the, the Talmud has four, we know of the four kushiot, the four questions um, that you're supposed to present, the child is supposed to ask at the beginning of the Seder. This again is a kind of ossification of what the Talmud is saying, where it lists sample questions uh. that could be elicited at the Seder table, and then says, that, but Rabbi so-and-so would sit everybody down at the meal and then take all the plates away so that the children would ask, what are you doing? And then tell a story about, well, when we were slaves in Egypt, we didn't have enough to eat. We had to, and so the Talmud itself, these guys are creatively trying to set up this pedagogical feast that will elicit problems, you know, and questions. So that, so once again, the four questions that the youngest learns to ask is supposed to be a symbolic questioning that then leads to, well, and so let me tell you, and by the way, what else do you have to ask? And we know that in many contemporary seders, we, the, the, the floor has been opened, right? And that's not a new development, that's a revival of, uh, because when it says that the five rabbis were telling the story of Passover and then the dawn broke and their student, student came, their attendant came in, this is in the Haggadah, their attendant came in and said, uh, uh, rabbis, it's time for the morning prayers, they were like, uh, they spent this night, because it's also supposed to be a night, it's a night of vigil, you know, a night of... Uh, intensity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a night of yeah. I just wonder, based on the proximity of the characters, if it's possible that there are five children. And, yes. And and how how does God uh, propose that we deal with Pharaoh, the fifth child? And and and, and I'm wondering if, if mockery is being taught to us uh, to be, as a technique to be uh, employed in effectively dealing with our adversities. Is that, is that really what the Torah is saying? Could be. Uh, was uh, mocking and showing up and uh, sh shaming and humiliating Pharaoh? Is that how we're supposed to treat our foes? Um, there's plenty of... Uh, um, uh, 
uh, trash talking in the Torah. Uh, <laughs> I, have a different, I have a different take on it. Yeah. I wonder if it's not just all uh, smoke and mirrors, you know, fireworks. In other words, it's, it's there to tell the story. They're sort of giving it away. They're saying, we made this up so that it's so over the top so that you will get everybody in. So I, I, I think it's kind of a fake. I, like, I, I, like, I don't know if it actually, if it's real. It's so over the top. It's so, there's so much suffering that, that comes with this, at asking the question, why would a God do this? This is, this is an awful way to teach, to tell somebody to tell a story. So I think, maybe just the movie. It's just like, <laughs> yep, yep, this is the movie version, and, you know. Well, let's take that in a couple of directions. Uh, go ahead, Carol. Well, I've been thinking this whole time. So that whole other story, from the beginning of Breshik to, to the end of Genesis is not enough. That's not the story you want me to tell. You have to come up with the story. And therefore, what's the difference between that whole story and this whole story? And then we start getting into something deeply personal, which is, which is liberation. Liberation. This is the story of liberation. Uh-huh. So it may be our bias against, you know, let's see, against a great sort of like epic, mythic stories. I mean, look at myths all over the world. They are high drama, huge amount of destruction. Yeah, yeah you know, it's like, that, is that bad? It, or can we learn to distinguish between a story and reality? I mean, most kids learn how to do that very well. We did, right? Do, do we take this lesson as to mean that we are to make a mockery of people that we, you know, is that, is that what the Torah is teaching us? However, one of the things that Aviva Zornberg points out is it does expose us to this counter-narrative mm-hmm. of a God who is uh, uh, mercurial and spiteful and, uh, you know, and because, remember the children of Israel constantly say in the wilderness, uh, they're being, they're threatened with destruction all the time. Uh, they say, let's go back to Egypt. They say, did you take us out here to kill us? Well, you know, what, does God hate us or something? They say all these things in the Torah, right? They're not outside the text, they're in the text. It's not, in his, it, it's not a heroic march to the promised land. It's, 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 tr- it's filled with tragedy and, uh, and complexity. And so if we can embrace it, that rather than reject it, um, not only do we then have great literature, but we're being asked for something more than this to treat this as literature. We're asking it to embrace it as, uh, as our human story, then it's asking us to do something hard, which is to get beyond, bad, and beyond bad guy, the bad guys and the good guys and tell this story in a way that reflects its complexity. I love that, if, as long as we don't feel like, as long as we're willing to embrace that. Yeah, Gail, what do you think? I think yes. I also 
the last couple of weeks I've been rereading this and really thinking that there are two, maybe there are two threads being put together in this because it seems to me that there's, that one of the stories here, and it's in the text, is our God simply saying, I'm stronger than the other gods. That's right. Not that they don't exist. But I'm more powerful, and I'm going to show you guys, and I'm going to show the world. That's right. And I'm going to destroy them if need be, but I'm certainly destroying everything for which that they protect, because they can't protect them against me. And and it feels like a very old mythic, like the first, like Kronos or whoever it is, you know, where there are several gods, and then one of them becomes the the big one, you know, destroying the others. Doing it feels like that story to me. Being, being said again and again. It's really in the text. I it's agree like with God's you. Sense. That story is in here. Right. And then it got put together with this other story that says, I'm doing this in order to free my people. And then the level beneath that is to free, to show you all that there's a way out of this inner place of constriction. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that, that's a very coherent story to me. It mm-hmm. takes all both threads and, and does something with them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's what I think. I think there are two original threads that got put together. Thank you. Carol, Carol would like to respond to When you said that, I thought, well, of course, the, the concept of the one God that brings everything together is stronger than the concept of all the individual gods. So that's that's the that's the, the, the fight that 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 what has to be proven, however it's represented in the story, is that this is a place that will bring everybody together and this is a place that will keep everybody apart. And we're coming from early uh, cultures who, who are often so far away from others that they, that they are it. And then they find out that, oh my God, somebody else is there, that must be the enemy. So it, I think what, I, what I'm hearing is, yes, you're absolutely right, but it's not the literal piece of that that is gonna bring me the, the, the deepest understanding. Right we, ha- right, we have a job to do here. Which, yes, Erica? It's a little slight tangent, but okay. the thing that has always troubled me the most about this story is that it's God that keeps hardening Pharaoh's heart, which I think implies that Pharaoh would have given up chop- plagues before the end. Mm. And in particular with the slaying of the firstborn, so if the point of this story is to tell the story, yeah, it makes a much better story if we have 10 plagues than if we have two, but like, it's, I've always been uncomfortable with God playing both sides of this against you. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's God that hardened Pharaoh's heart and then punished him for having a hard heart that has always felt just so... Unfair. Unfair, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and especially given the suffering of people who aren't Pharaoh. If we're going to use the modern analogy, that would be my son dying because Trump is an idiot. Just feels like so... And especially if it was God that made Pharaoh Pharaoh in the first place. I don't know. That, that's 
always been internal yeah. problems with this type last, of last, last week we talked about this okay. a Sorry. lot. <laughs> Not that we solved it, but we, that we really, really dug into this. Let that be in the mix, too. Yeah. Uh, yes, Deborah. So for me, this works best if it's a journey about consciousness. I have to let go of the literal stuff in terms of the lessons, the, the good stories. But for me, the lessons are a little different. So this is how I take this. I had occasion uh, a couple of weeks ago to talk to a young woman who wound up a successful businesswoman who wound up in um, drug rehab and talked to me about all these ways she was torn down before she finally cracked open. And of course, you know, the 12-step program is about only a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. And so, so I thought about that. And then I thought about my own journey, that I had no spiritual anything until I had plagues. <laughs> no, <laughs> not one or two, but like a series of... So to me, it's not just about it makes a better story. I have a pharaoh in me who it was not going to shift with one person dying or one terrible thing happened. I really needed to crash to the bottom before I could feel like there was something higher than me that was going to restore me. So if I look at it that way, it's so much more helpful. <laughs> because I do think it's all in me, Mitzrayim, Pharaoh, God, it's all in me. And I think this helps me understand those components. Thank you. Yes. Um, uh, go ahead, Gail. Thank you, Deborah. That was very articulate. Yeah, and I agree with Deborah completely, as anyone who knows me knows. I mean, that's what I mean by the <laughs> mystical reading. It's all about our own awareness. Um, but in response to Carol, I, I keep thinking that I'm just talking about a shot story, the surface level, you know, that the Jews were not monotheists. The Jews, time of Jeremiah, 700 BC, they're still worshiping Astarte alongside Yehovah. They have festivals to Astarte where they bake challah, the women, okay? And Jeremiah's saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> so, so, so to me, the Peshat story is taking, it was written at and being passed on at a time in which it was a power struggle among you know, who was going to believe who's in charge here and who's the most powerful. And he had a consort, in fact. Um, and it's not about being a good guy. So hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's like the Greek gods. They don't have to be terribly moral. They're not good. <laughs> They're just powerful. And I think the original story is only about power. Pharaoh's power versus God's power, the Egyptian gods versus this god, and maybe this god versus Astarte in, in, their, in the subtext. I mean, I don't know, but that's, that's what I've been feeling more and more as I've been, I've been rereading it this year, and it's too different. Well, that's we're, we, we struggle with many gods. They might not have the same kind of name, but we all struggle to assume There are many gods I struggle with, and when I, 
when I can get some clarity on that, and I come back to yud hey vav or I am what I'm becoming, or, or life unfolding, or whatever, that's when, when, I can, when I can settle enough, then I know what my God is. But I can be pulled off of it really quickly. And it must, it must be true, no matter, to me anyway, no matter what the, the literal is. The literal is always representing something that's going on in people's hearts. And I have no idea. I mean, they articulated it pretty well, the people who wrote this. But I have no idea what ancient people actually had in their minds, but they were human beings. And they lived pretty much the same lives that we did, shorter. Um, um, and so these things are there. They have to have been there. Or we wouldn't identify so much with all this. So yes, maybe it's all power. You know, when actors are looking for objectives to what does the character want to do in a scene, it's always going to be either power or sex. That's what it's going to ultimately come down to. And, and actually, that comes probably down to power. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, that, the motivation that's going to carry me through has something, I have to know that I have enough power to stand up in this world and to sit here and say what I'm saying. I am less invested in whether or not it's the ultimate truth or but. But power is not just, you know, a horrible thing. We all, we all need our share of power. Can Good. I, can I say Good. one more thing? <laughs> Please do. Please do. So, I think from everything I've ever read, for the peoples of that time, and certainly into medieval Europe, but certainly of that time, what they were faced with were inexplicable forces. Things happened. You know, people died, lightning hit them, fires broke out. I mean, things happened, floods, whatever, plagues, killed all, you know, all firstborn. Um, and for them, it was a matter of placating whoever, whatever force it was that they were most worried about at that time. So I think that's what the original story is about. And when I say, you know, my God is, um, I just went totally blank. I'm blank behind you. Well, let's say my God is money. Okay. Um, I don't actually think that there's a force independent of me called money. Okay? There's no such thing. But if I were a person of that era, there's a force that creates and, and, and is contained within the lightning and the thunder. It's a different world entirely and a different worldview. And, and you know, even the idea of the name of God being I am becoming. From everything I've read, it, it's not at all clear that that was the biblical understanding of it. It's our understanding, and, and I will add that, as you know from anyone who's looked at what I've written, it's a completely coherent story, Torah, at the mystical level, in which it's I am becoming. But there were, you know, 2,000 years, well, there was at least 1,000 years, a lot of years of scribes putting the text together so that, and editing it so that we could come out with this mystical understanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I'm just saying that at the Peshat level, I can see what feels to me to have been the original what story. What is Peshat? Surface. What was the original story? And that it was not pretty. And for whatever reason, including ways we can interpret it, the scribes allowed that those phrases to remain that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That, that they, they continued to edit this for thousands of years. For hundreds of years, they continued it at least as far as we know until it became codified at the second century, third century. Third century BCE. Yes, yes. this so is an incredibly worked-over text. Um, yeah, in incredibly worked-over literary product. That's so, so maybe the the, the the reduction of all this is that it's foolish to think that these authors believed in a God as anything other than what everybody's been saying, a reflection of us, and that therefore it's okay to be horrific towards Pharaoh because he's only a part of us, and, and he's not, he, we're, we're really not gonna banish anyone in totality. Uh, maybe that is some kind of a softening of the judgment uh, of the Almighty, if, if he's not really making an eternal condemnation of anyone, but asking us to simply turn the lens to another part of ourselves. Or you could say, as a mystic, if what we're talking about is the sort of deep reality where the, we are the, we, at a given moment, we have been created by everything that has ever happened to us and to some extent to the entire universe mm -hmm. at a given moment. So God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's all of that that's hardening Pharaoh's heart. That's a mystical understanding that which is, is for us very easy to, to take. I'm just saying that originally, way back when, I don't think that's what they had in mind. Um, so, thank you. You're expressing it so clearly. I want to attempt to express my thoughts about what you're describing. That it's very hard for us to be able to tease out the different, say, strata of, of a text and its evolution. That is a big activity of the whole field of Bible study, you know, is, well, what era was this written in? What were their beliefs at the time? And all, all that's very important to me, as, as you know. So here we have a story in classic, in, a, in, in this classic way you describe, of uh, one the one God showing that other, everyone else's pretensions of Godhood are false and showing the whole world that and in a dangerous world the Israelites wanting to know that their God is the one awesome powerful God right all of that and we we moderns rebel against that if, um, if we have a universalist, you know, frame of reference, right? We can't handle that. That's then. This is now. We need a different, and that's a big part of the activity of, you know, how we interpret the Torah, uh, is we say that was then, this is now, and what is the teaching in here that we want to bring forward from that? And I guess I would take the only thing I take issue with of what you're saying is the assumption that this is like that there's some original level of the story that something else was, you know, worked in on. 
Because I would instead say, in the context of that time, people, from, for many, many centuries afterwards, peoples would enter into covenants with their protector, whether it was Hammurabi or it's, right? And so that was the language of the time. There were powerful kings who were gods, and people would enter into covenants. You know, if you do biblical, biblical scholars, have, in, in, have compared ancient covenantal texts from Sumeria or from Egypt or from other places in the Near East with the language of the covenantal text of us entering into a covenant with God and they all line up, right? Still, there seems to me to be something radical and dis... Um, the word I'm looking at is a, a new leap of, of using the context, using the frameworks and the, of the time, there's still something that lifts this story into a different okay. level, which is that our God has some demands. Are those demands simply fealty? No. Those demands are to pursue justice. Those demands are to not go the way of Pharaoh, to not worship idols. In other words, that's where I see this as a spiritual insight, a spiritual leap, actually, I would say, expressed in the format and, con and, and conceptual universe of its time. Do you understand what I'm saying? I actually agree with you. Once you put it Did that I make way, sense? Yes. Did that make sense? But, and, what's, but what's so, and what's so interesting as a literary work <clears throat> is that we don't get to hear that God is going to ask anything of us in the way of ethics and morality until we get to Sinai. So all of these chapters, it's like a setup, saying what I said, it's a setup, which I have just been captured by, okay? <laughs> that it's all about power, okay? That's all it looks like. That's all it looks, it looks like. like. Until we get to Sinai, mm -hmm. and the Ten Commandments, but, and then the whole frame shifts. Well, I would say that Genesis presages okay. yes. all yes. of that by making Abraham the friend of God who says to God, when he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, will not the will not the um, um, the source of all justice right. do justly? What if there are innocent people there? It, it, it's all in the, it's all set up. I mean, Cain versus Abel is the beginning. Right, that is the right. setup. That's going yeah. to be the question. I'm right, the right. Paper. So it's all set up. But but it's it's a hint. And in reading Exodus, the beginning of it looks like oh. Okay. Uh -huh. And then you only get the revelation, and it's a revelation when we get to sign. This is why you freed me. Uh huh. Oh. I want to go back to Egypt. <laughs> yeah, sure. You, and, and that's what the people say. But Blaze, you've been waiting a long time. I'm sorry. No, don't be sorry. I'm looking at it from a bit of a different point of view, um, which actually sort of meshes. But um, I'm looking at. All of, when you talk about all of the struggles in the desert, and they want to go back, and they don't want to do this, this is building the muscle of the Jewish people to survive. <clears throat> because just as we as individuals have to exercise and build our own muscles in order to be strong and healthy and survive, live a long, healthy life, it's not guaranteed, this is all building the muscle of the people to last for longevity, which we have. 
And without all those struggles, we wouldn't have that strength and that muscle and that power to keep going. And so it's that strength that gets us to Sinai. And that's that strength that gets us past Sinai and enables us to um, enact and manifest those commandments. Because if we couldn't, if we hadn't, if we hadn't been through what we'd been through, we'd be like, you know, mush maybe or something. So I'm looking at it as a story of not only liberation, but survival as well. So from that perspective, we look for that everything that happened to us had a purpose uh, in order to strengthen us and teach us and so that we can find out what we're made of. And Yes, and that's, a, that's another level of reading the Torah. None of these levels contradict each other. They supplement each other. Uh, and the rabbinic tradition is a tradition of multivocal readings of the text. Lots of different ways to read it. Um, I'll get back to that in a minute. Carol? Um, I think there's, a, there's another precursor in Genesis that I have recently become aware of by listening to the recordings of your classes. Um, and that is when Rebecca says, why am I here? Mm -hmm. Rebecca's yeah. pregnant. It's a horrible experience. And she says, if so, why Lama, why am I do exist? And and the answer is, if I'm right about this, is when she hears the voice of God, when God speaks to Rebecca, and Rebecca and God says to to nations are in your womb, and this one of that, and that one of this. But that is what I'm hearing in that it, as the answer to her question has to do with continuing the line telling the story, keeping it going. And I got very excited when, when, I, when I heard that, because that, first of all, it brings Rebecca in as a, as a much more important Rebecca Rebecca's person. very important. And, uh, and, that, and that the woman is carrying that part of the story. Yes, the, the narrative hinges on the, the Torah continuing hinges on Rebecca's relationship with the God, uh, not Isaac's. Yeah. Um, okay. So for the 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 once we if we can get ourselves to a place of of um, not uh, beyond the fragile sort of place of, wait, I don't like this part. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm done with this story. Right? If we can get past that, uh, uh, then our inner spiritual life can be reflected in what we see in the text. Then we can think critically about it. Then we can do our historical analysis. We can do, we can wrestle with the text. And the good news is that, that is the rabbinic tradition. Right? The, the rabbinic tradition is not to uh, uh, not to not to just have a, su a superficial or a unitary reading of the text, but to embrace telling stories about the story. Why? Because that's what we're instructed to do to tell to teach our children. So the Haggadah reads. You read the Haggadah, and it's your it's your it's your 
your instructions for how to do this. And it says, I'll tell you my, those, these two crucial lines again, even if all of us were wise, all of us, chachamim, uh, nevonim, educated, informed, experienced, still it would be our responsibility to tell the story of the exodus from Egypt. And anyone who expands upon the story is worthy of praise. That's the instruction in the Haggadah. Again, so it's so kind of ironic and awful that people just read that line too and then go on to the next paragraph, right? Um, but uh, is worthy of praise. And then, um, uh, then it says, and every person should view themselves, we were slaves in Egypt, and every person should view him or herself as personally going forth from slavery to freedom. I mean, there's the instructions, everybody. Our biases, our limitations, our blinders prevent us from reading what's right on the page. Not, oh, what a horrible God, uh, I can't, uh, you know, or not, that's, that's not the instruction. Um, or even, oh, what a horrible Pharaoh. You know, that's the, that's the story you tell to the children, and that's where we get into the four children again. That's the version of the story you tell to the four-year-old. The bad guy is threatening us, and our good God shows him that's bad and takes us out of there. Right? And that's the story you tell to the one who says, what is going on? You know? <laughs> and then the next one, the, the, you know, the, the, the one who at another level of development, you dig in in a different way. And then this, this one who was alienated or opposed, the rabbis say, you set his teeth on edge and say, hey, if you'd been there, and I'm quoting the Haggadah, God wouldn't have freed you because you wouldn't have counted yourself among us, among the, the, the oppressed. So that's either a really harsh, cruel thing to say, or it's the truth. You know, if you don't identify with the oppressed, you know, it's like you're, you're on the sidelines. Yeah, it's not about you, right? Or, or, or. And they're only using four. They're using four because four is the good number, right? It's like, um, but there are countless ways to impart a story. Uh, Please. I don't remember your name. Erica. Erica said something um, before that I was thinking about, and it was how um, you know you kind of felt a little bad for Pharaoh, and the whole story can be inverted. Yes. Really, as a, a becoming empathic, empathetic to Pharaoh, the oppressor becomes the oppressed, and the whole thing just gets flipped on its head, and all of a sudden we're identifying with the with the devil. You know, and yet. How do you flip that? Well, what is the mechanism by which you make that flip in your mind? Oh, because if, you, if, if Pharaoh is, and, and his innocent people are being smitten with all the plagues, and we then start feeling some empathy or, or, or uh, like feeling for the Egyptians and for Pharaoh himself, who's the, who said it's not fair. You know, it's kind of, he's, it's not, it. God hardened his heart. And now he's getting punished for it. So if it's not fair, isn't the Jews' oppression, the Israelites' oppression, also not fair? So it just, right? 
and so on and so on and Scooby Doo. Well, just you know what I mean. It just it just flipped. The whole story could be just completely inverted. Sure. And then the so I that's kind of right. And then that for me that also takes away the literal. I think I'm going to read know, you something after the detestation of like oh man that's mm -hmm. a messed up well, that's God. That's the spiritual to do that. practice of putting yourself in the other guy's shoes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm not like. All the way outside. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also more sympathetic to the people in Egyptian society whose choice is not, right? I get so, it. like, the women in Egyptian society, for example, who I'm assuming don't have a choice as to whether the Israelites are enslaved or not and are losing their children because their king is an idiot, who, by the way, is being kept an idiot by the God who's like, it just, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. That. Yeah. Can I just say one more thing about that? Yeah. The, the stuff you were saying earlier about how all of that, like, there's going to be an ethical justice thing built into this covenant that's presaged in, in Genesis, Genesis, is why I think we can't just say, well, all gods are capricious and whatever, because this god is going to say, I'm the god of justice. Well, if you're the god of justice, then you have to act justly. I mean, Zeus never claimed to be a particular <laughs> guy, so he's not, okay, but this god is saying, like, I'm on the side of justice, and justice is upheld, and, and, and you're going to love your enemies is going to be there eventually. So that's why I think this God has to then hold himself or herself or itself to a higher standard, because that's a higher claim of moral mm -hmm. agency than the cults of just capricious power, right? And that's right. And, and it's not consistent here in the text. You, that's right. And so I just want to read something interesting. The, the Talmud is really aware of that. Uh, and uh, when, when the Torah records, God is saying, because I hardened his heart about Pharaoh, uh, the Midrash takes up this explanation of the logic of events, the beginning of our Parsha, and opens up a vista of multiple narratives. So in the Talmud it says, Rabbi Yochanan says, this is a problem because it provides a pretext, an opening for heretics to say, it was impossible for Pharaoh to repent, since it says, I have hardened his heart. Uh -huh. So the rabbis are having, I just want to point out to you, that the rabbis are having the same conversation as us in the third century. Wow, right. Okay? Um, they don't accept, they don't, they don't, we're being good Jews <laughs> by having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Okay? And, and it's not even Passover. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Desiree. So I'm, I'm kind of stuck back with saying to the wicked child, um, you, you would not have been freed because you've separated yourself from us. And suddenly, it's like everything I want to say to my own child because you want to say when they're rebellious and when they're acting out and when they've separated themselves from you, you need to get with the program. You're my kid, whether you identify as my child or not, and if you don't change the way you're looking at this, you will be enslaved by your own limited perception of yourself, perception of your family and mm -hmm. your community that you've rejected. Mm -hmm. And so you're gonna, you, you, I'm, I'm looking at this entirely differently now because I would not have considered, you know, wicked as the word for that child and I wouldn't have, have thought to say you're going to be 
left behind and enslaved, but as long as you're separating yourself, you're never going to have the support to get to liberation. Right. And contemporary Haggadahs take the word wicked out right. and substitute it. They put the alienated. Right. The, right. you know, the, and find a different word because, you know, in the, I guess when they were making the Haggadah, they had no problem throwing around the word wicked. <laughs> right, but, but I love it. Oh, yeah. good. <laughs> I want to be it. <laughs> yeah, Gary. Uh, I'm just thinking, you know, who would have thought that, you know, my only remaining hero, Ali, would have so much in common with this guy because there's that great story when he changed his name from Cassius Clay to Ali and, and Floyd Patterson kept calling him Cassius Clay in a pre-fight and Ali got him in the ring and he could have knocked him out in the second round, but every time Floyd would go down, Ali would lift him up and say, what's my name, boy? And he would whip him again. And, and, and what's my name, boy? You know, and he would whip him and he would lift him up and he would harden his body. And, when, and finally, when he had enough, my name's Cassius Clay, and he knocked him out. My name's? Cassius, well, Muhammad Ali, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Ali is my name. Ali is my name, yeah. and knocked him out. And, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, I just read his, my, my family got me the, the, his, the new biography about him for like a uh, uh, birthday present. I just read the whole biography. Extraordinary. That's a great example. Two boxers in the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of us, I mean, we're horrified by boxing. Mm-hmm. Right? We want to turn away. And yet at the same time, it's utterly primal. And, uh, you know, it's a... It, it's Just complicated. One other quick Ali Would you please? I was picking up my son. We could do a ago. whole course on Ali. <laughs> I'm picking up my kid when he's 16 years old at it, and they're down playing spin the bottle, and we're waiting for the kids to come up. And I met a guy who was younger than me, waiting for his kid. The only time I ever saw him, and we talked while we were waiting for the kids. And where are you from? Sherry Hill. I said, oh, Ali, and he lived in Sherry Hill. And he said, he told me that his eyes got a glow. 13 years old. He and his uh, kid, 12, 13, the Jewish, rich Jewish kids, when Ali was the most famous man in the world, a prince in every way, heavyweight champion, they would, after school, get on their bicycle and ride over to Ali's house and wait for him for an hour. And sometimes, he would, if, he, if, when, if he came up with his chauffeur and his limited, he would get out and he would go up to one of the boys, come over here, boy, he would say to him, you think you're bad? He said, I'm the heavyweight champion. And he would box. And he would say, that all you got, boy? You know what I mean? Then he would slap this. You got nothing. You can't take me. I'm the heavyweight champion of the world. And the kids would roar. Of course, you wouldn't hurt anybody. And boy, that all you got? You got nothing. And this guy, man was in his 40s and his was still glowing. The oh, kindness yeah. of this. That's who he gave to everybody. He never, he threw his money to anyone who needed it. He had... Yeah, he was an astonishing character. And yet, Mike Tyson said at one point, he was the most vicious of us all. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, Tyson could learn from him then. <laughs> so, Tyson's also an interesting guy. I know, I know, he's trying. Uh, Sorry. So, that's okay, oh, we can talk boxing, know. that's fine. Um, okay, so, when... So I talked about, but this could provide an opening for heretics. This is a, this, and the rabbis then discuss, well, what do you say to heretics? And then, Aviva Zornberg brings this whole set of Midrashim uh, where it says, 
Whenever you, whenever you find an, a pitchon peh, an opening of the mouth, which is what it literally means, for a heretic to say, hey, your Torah says this, because there they are, these rabbis in the, in, the, in the Greek world, in the Hellenistic world, and they are competing with other ideologies and with people who, who Greek wisdom and all that, so they would have people coming in and questioning them. And, and Rabbi Simley says, you find an answer right beside it, and he, show, he gives a few examples, like, why does they let us make man in our image? You know, one of the biggest problematic lines in the Torah when we were in Genesis. Who's God talking to? And so I'm not going to go into the details, but uh, Reb Simlai then gives an explanation to the heretic who wants to, like, tear down the text. And the heretic says, hmm, okay, and leave. And then it says, when the heretics had left, his students took up the issue and said, Rabbi, you fobbed them off easily, but how do you answer us? Did you follow me there? Yeah. That's the yeshiva student saying. Say that, say that again, Rabbi. When the heretic had left, because the answer that Reb Simlai gave them was sort of like was tit for tat, you think this is what, no, this is what it actually means. And the heretic left. And then it says, when the heretics had left, Reb Simlai's students took up the same question and said, Rabbi, you fobbed that guy off easily, but fobbed, yeah. you kind of, you blew him off. But how do you answer us? They weren't at all satisfied with his answer. And he gives them more answers. But the whole point is, it's like, the heretic is not the ultimate questioner. The ultimate questioner is the one who's, who's trying to learn from the rabbi. It's like, wow, keeping your rabbi's feet to the fire. It's like really cool, you know. Um, and there's a whole series of midrashim that, that, that deal with this. Okay, Rabbi, that's a, okay, you know, so that answer satisfied him, but what about our question? Right. We have deeper questions here. It's beautiful stuff. So I was thinking about the midrashim, about when, this, when God brings the children to, of Israel to Mount Sinai. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. And uh, um, the... The plain, the text says, after God had finished speaking the Ten Commandments, the people were terrified and fell back from the mountains and said, Moses, you talk to God because we're going to die. Mm -hmm. This is not a benign situation. This is like, I mean, this is death-defying to encounter. And again, those of us who who relate to this on spiritual and mystical terms, to encounter the, the light of the heart of creation, you know, that burning bush, that, and then to actually receive what it's telling you to do. Look what it tells Moses to do. <laughs> Moses is married, he has two kids, he's a shepherd, everything's cool, right? And the, the, the voice says, you have to go back to where you came from and straighten things out, right? It, you know, Moses could just as easily keep walking and then we wouldn't have our story. And the same thing happens at Mount Sinai. And uh, the rabbis talk about this because then it'll say in the next Parsha, and when Moses gives them the terms of the covenant, the people all said, we will, we will listen and obey and we will do all the terms of this covenant. We will do and we will we listen. We will do and we will listen, right? Not said, we will do and we will listen. We'll not talk about that right now. All the terms of this covenant. And the rabbis have a field day with this. Like, what, they were willing now? No. 
one of the famous Midrashim says, God, they stood at the foot of the mountain, the Tachat Ahyar, which means at the base or underneath the mountain, and literally underneath. And they say, the reason they said yes to the covenant was God held the mountain over their heads and they were under the mountain. <coughs> and God said, okay, you're going to accept the covenant? <laughs> right, so the rabbis in their storytelling way make sh- are, don't shy away from these dark readings of what's being asked of us and uh, whether we're actually, you know, this is not a happy-go-lucky story. It, it's quite intense. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that, 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 what's that thing about the letters, the Hebrew letters are embedded in, in mystical ways? In Do I ways? believe it? Yeah. Um, let's see. I get great joy, wisdom, and insight from it. But it's not a question of belief from for me, if, if you understand what I... I don't, because I don't even but vaguely remember that. Okay, so the, so the Torah is understood to function on every level of consciousness and reality. And the, the primary level, the, 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 the concrete level is called pshat, which means the, the uh, literal story. So the literal story is what we're reading. And then there are deeper and deeper or higher and higher or more inward or more inward, you know, it doesn't matter how you describe, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a physical direction, levels that go into inter- interpretive levels and associative levels. And um, then the deepest level is called sod, where every letter is a pathway to God. Every letter of the text. And, the re- and so, the, because Judaism reveres language, right, reveres it, and Hebrew, therefore, becomes considered to be a holy alphabet, then in, the, in, this, in this level of telling, um, uh, each letter contains multitudes. And so Rabbi Akiva, who was the most... Uh, important rabbi of the first and second century um, said that um, every jot and tittle, in other words, every yud, iota is the Greek word, the Hebrew word is yud, yud is the tiniest letter, and the tittles are, if you look in a Torah scroll, on the letters in classic Torah calligraphy, little um, crowns of calligraphic crowns are placed on the um, uh, letters. He said, every jot and tittle contains infinite meanings. Um, And so a famous story is told about Akiva and Moses. And again, this gives you an idea of the the, um, sophisticated way that Judaism treats the text. Not just modern Judaism, but ancient Judaism. Uh, Moses, they tell a story. Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai, and forgive me if you've heard this many times. Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai, uh, writing down the Torah. Um, And uh, God is dictating. And Moses says to God, oh, no, 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 sorry, start over. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and finds God tying crowns 
to each of the letters of the Torah. <laughs> and Moses says to God, what are you doing? And God says, well, there's a man who will come along many, many, many generations from now named Akiva, who will interpret these crowns. And uh, Moses says, that's amazing. Moses being the most humble man on earth, Moses says, that's amazing. Can I see this man? And God says, turn around. And Moses finds himself in the back of Akiva's classroom. And he is listening to Akiva, and he can't even understand the questions that Akiva's students are asking Akiva, yet it's all about the Torah. Right? There's a level of self-awareness that the rabbis are exhibiting here, right? And Moses is just amazed at the erudition and the like, and turns around back to God and says, that's incredible, God. And what's going to become of this man, Akiva? And uh, uh, God says, turn around. And he sees Akiva being uh, uh, flayed by the Romans for refusing to uh, obey their, their uh, decree to stop teaching Torah. And he's executed by. And um, Moses turns back around to God and says, this is your reward for this, you know, this, this, this giant. And God says, silence. Such are my ways. Wow. End of story. Wow. This is one of the most famous rabbinic stories. So all in like a paragraph, that story, you know, you, you get that the rabbis are, are, the people who formed the rabbinic tradition are willing, first of all, to affirm that they are making meanings out of crowns on the letters and that that is good, right? And secondly, they're willing to affirm that they have no idea why the righteous suffer, right? No idea. God's, such are God's ways, you know, and... Um, I don't know where to leave that exactly, except to say that that's the story. Um, Isn't that one of the fundamental things that we all have to try to come to grips with in our own lives? You know, how to deal with the suffering that, that others put upon us? Or the suffering that, of, that of, the suffering of the righteous period of like undeserved suffering, right? But haven't we all identified with the righteous being accused yourself at some point and had to deal with, figure out how to deal with Yeah. Are, is your faith going to be crushed? Mm -hmm. Or are you just going to keep tending the orchard, you know, of... of... So similarly, you know, the innocence in Egypt, mm -hmm. or even Pharaoh, it's just, yeah. Mm -hmm. just, yes, God's yes. ways, unknowable. Unknowable. Mm -hmm. Unknowable. So God's ways are unknowable, so therefore... Oh, we should we just eat, drink, and be merry? And go to the track instead of come to Torah. Yeah, it's like, and that that question also inheres. Right. What what are we doing all this for? That question also inheres right in the Torah itself because the Book of Ecclesiastes refutes all the claims of the Book of Deuteronomy. The Book of Ecclesiastes, which is part of the Holy Scripture, refutes all of the claims of the Book of Deuteronomy. Ecclesiastes is just like, hey, everything, the water flows back to the sea again. The, it's like, I've seen it all before. There's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. It's all, 
everything is, is, is hevel hevalim means um, translated in the King James as vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Right. We've talked about this. It's not vanity in that sense. Hevel hevalim, hevel is a puff of air, a puff of breath. You know, everything is, everything is transient. And this is the, so what should we do? Well, enjoy your youth while you're young, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's in the Torah. So all of it is to say we, we have permission to have this debate, but we also have an instruction, which is to tell the story and then keep talking about it. And that's, that's what we do. Yeah. So, so to me, some of it depends on what your goal is. So yeah, if your goal is to just have a lot of fun, okay. But if your goal is, and I'm assuming it's for most of us this is our goal, to live more deeply, to live in more satisfaction, to live with more peace, then... And then more people of conscience. Yeah, so that then there's some other... Um, thing that we want to do besides get drunk, have fun. It's it, because those folks are going to die too. It's not like you escape that. Mm -hmm. So it feels to me like our assignment is to try to find that presence of, of peace and love and more depth and more something as we go through that. And that, so it seems to me that if that's our goal, then we're going to make a different choice. I think, I think that most human beings, there are obvious exceptions throughout history. That they I sure think, are. No, well, I, think, I think, you know, like all living creatures, we're a spectrum of, mm -hmm. uh, and that, that, that at the far end of our spectrum are people without conscience and without empathy. And that's why we need laws. Um, and laws enforced. Uh, on the other hand, the vast majority of us are people of conscience. It inheres in us, who ask questions about why am I here? What does it mean to be good? You know, all those. That's and um, yeah. So I'm saying it's not like that. So the reward will be because we have a very simplistic sort of brain sometimes. So the reward will be you'll be good and good things will happen to you and you won't ever die or you and. Um, <laughs> You know, I just think we look for, it's a different reward. Right. It's, it's a reward in and of itself to live with, mm -hmm. at that level of consciousness. And I would say to live a life with a sense of meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With a sense of, of, of that you're going somewhere. Did you want to say something? That's what I was going to say. That when I was in seminary, I went through this period of like, why the heck am I doing Like, it's hard. Right. The spiritual life is hard. And it... And it in my case, had some actual, like, real-life sacrifices built into it. And, like, why? What is the point? And that was the point. Because that's how you live a life that has meaning. And meaning is the reward, not riches right, or right. smooth sailing or whatever. Meaning and purpose, that's the reward. Yeah, yeah. I, I suggest we, we look at the text for a little while. Um, and where I'd like to start is um, look at page 409, chapter 12. 
I ask a tiny question? Of first? course. Um, you've been translating what my older translation says as tell your sons and your sons' sons as your children. Right. What does the Hebrew say? Does the Hebrew... Well, the Hebrew says sons. Oh, the Hebrew says sons and your translation. Uh, the Hebrew says sons, but the question for a modern translator is they didn't have... They, they, is can, can we legitimately translate that as children? I think we can. Yes, but um, here, um, here Moses replies, we will all go young and old, we will go with our sons and daughters. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yes, so there. it does. So in the context, yeah. uh, this, the, women didn't vote. Yes. And this ritual of the Passover was the fundamental citizenship right, ritual, of being part of Israel. And included women? No. Oh. No. Women didn't, I'm, I'm giving this a modern analogy, women weren't citizens in that sense. They were, um, they, they, they were subsets of the males who uh, were the heads of clans or families. So no, in the context of this, you tell it to your sons, and the women and children are part of that son who tells the story. You, you follow what I'm saying? Yes. That's patriarchy. Yes. Um, and, uh, but I think we have, you know, again, the liberty to translate it as children, given the different social structure that we live in right now, where who is this pertaining to? Yes. And <laughs> since, since Hebrew is a gendered language, and it's it, then, then, you know, I just, I take the liberty of saying children, yeah. But um, my, my note here says, among the males in Egypt, only men participated in worship, but Moses expressly includes women in, um, in, in that verse. Oh. Um, Yours, uh, we will go, young and old, we will go with our sons and daughters. So uh, this is verse um, not Verse nine, 9 in chapter 10, on yeah. page 406. Um, well, you have to go back to verse 7. Oh. Pharaoh's courteous said to him, How long shall this one be a snare to us? Let their notables go to worship the eternal their God. Are you not yet aware that Egypt is lost? So he only, in this case, Pharaoh is only willing to let the men, the male leadership go. They can go, have their thing, and come back. And, and Moses says, no, in this case, it's all of us. So this is contextual in response to Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's position. Um, okay, so, um, so the tenth plague has happened. We're on page 409 now, uh, in chapter 11 here. Um, uh, I'll look at verse 4. Thus says the Eternal. Toward midnight I will go forth among the Egyptians, and every male firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the millstones, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a loud cry in all the land of Egypt, such as never been or will ever be again. 
but not a dog shall snarl at any of the Israelites, at human or beast, in order that you may know that the Eternal makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And again, that distinction, as I understand it, in the context of the storyteller, is there are no innocent Egyptians. Pharaoh is Egypt. So, though it's very important for us to expand the story in that way, in this context, uh, uh, there are two entities. Pharaoh and the people that he claims to be God over, and yod heh and, and the, the people he's claiming, the Israelites. Um, yeah. is, is there a quote by Heschel that says something to the effect of some are some no, he said, guilty, all, some, some are guilty, all are responsible. That is Heschel. Mm-hmm. This context? I don't know what the context is. He repeated it many times, I know, actually. I wonder, in a free society, he said, his phrase was, in a free society, free society. some are guilty, all are responsible. But we're including the slave girl in here. So this is yes. not a free society. Right, exactly. That's right. And there are others enslaved besides the Israelites. <clears throat> That's right. That's right. That's right. No, we're going to get back right to the primal. This right. is our God versus your God. We're right there. However, when they leave Egypt... Well, we'll get to that. Um, uh, verse 8. Then all these courtiers of yours shall come down to me and bow low. This is Moses talking, saying, Depart, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will depart. And he left Pharaoh's <coughs> presence in hot anger. I love that scene. Now the Eternal had said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you in order that my marvels may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron had performed all these marvels before Pharaoh, but the Eternal had stiffened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would not let the Israelites go from his land. And now the narrative stops, and the instructions come right into the middle of the story. The Eternal One said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say, that on the 10th of this month, the month of Nisan, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let it share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby in proportion to the number of persons. You shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep watch over it until the 14th day of this month and all the assembled congregation of the Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. That's Passover Eve. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked anyway with water, but roasted, head, legs, and entrails over the fire. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. And this is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. <coughs> this Hebrew word, bechipazon. Chipazon. Chipazon seems to mean sort of like, certainly in a, in a hurry, but also almost in a panic. Right? It's like, this is like... It is a Passover offering to the Eternal. Forgive my joke, because uh, I've told it 50 times, but my family fulfilled this 
part of the commandment. We ate hurriedly. <laughs> My whole family. <laughs> For that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every male firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human and beast, and I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt, I the Eternal. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pasachti, pass over. Pasach is actually to leap over, like skipping like rams, you know. It's that image. It's a, it's a, it's a leap. Uh, I will leap, but I think they put Passover here so that we would know we're dealing with Passover. Uh, so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And going forward, this day shall be to you one of remembrance. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the eternal throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the very first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. <coughs> for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And you shall celebrate a sacred occasion on the first day and a sacred occasion on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them. Only what every person is to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this, this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. No leaven shall be found in your houses for seven days. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person, whether a stranger or a citizen of the country, shall be cut off from the community of Israel. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your settlements you shall eat unleavened bread. That was a lot of repetition, right? That's they want, they want to make it clear. Moses then summoned all the elders of Israel. So there's the instructions, but not just for this night, but for all time. So that's why somehow, when it says at the beginning of the portion, God is doing this so that you will tell it to your children, that's how I started this <coughs> discussion. It's clear that that's the whole reason for all of this. It's all happening so that you will tell it to generation after generation. Moses then summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, pick out lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover offering. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Hyssop is za'atar. If you like za'atar, that's what hyssop is. Uh, apply some of the blood that is in the <clears throat> basin to the lintel and to the door, two doorposts. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning. For the Eternal, when going through to smite the Egyptians, will see the blood on the lintel and the, and the two doorposts, and the Eternal will pasach, pass over the door, and not let the destroyer enter and smite your home. It, by the way, it never says the angel of death here. That's a lay, the malach That's not in the, um, it's just called the destroyer. Uh, and you shall observe this as an institution for all time, for you and your descendants, and when you enter the land that the Eternal will give you as promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children ask you, uh, the Hebrew is, What is the meaning of this ritual? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Eternal who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt 
when smiting the Egyptians, but saved our houses. The people then bowed low in homage, and the Israelites went and did so, just as the Eternal had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. In the middle of the night, the Eternal <clears throat> struck down all the male firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh arose in the night with all his courtiers and all the Egyptians, because there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was no house where there was not someone dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, <clears throat> Up, depart from among my people, says Pharaoh. You and the Israelites, go. Go, worship the Eternal, as you said, and take your flocks and your herds, as you said, and be gone. And may you bring a blessing upon me also. Pharaoh's last words. Humbled momentarily. And the Egyptians urged the people on, impatient to have them leave the country, for they said, we shall all be dead. <clears throat> so the people took their dough before it was leavened. This is where that part of the story comes in. Their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. The Israelites had done Moses' bidding and borrowed from the Egyptians objects of silver and gold and clothing, and the Eternal had disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people, and they let them have their request. Thus they stripped the Egyptians. And the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot. And you can read the notes. It might mean 6,000, aside from dependence. Moreover, and this is the phrase I wanted to get to, a mixed multitude went up with them. Erev Rav. The Hebrew is Erev Rav, uh, which I think mixed multitude is a good translation both for... Um, alliterative and translation purposes. Erev Rav, mixed multitude. So... Is that a different Erev than night? Erev? Yeah, well, Erev is... Evening is night. Lila is night. Erev is evening because it's when the light and dark Ma'ariv mixes. So Ma'ariv, twilight, is called Bain Ha'arbayim, is because La'arov is to mix together. So it is the same. Because, isn't that interesting, the word for evening, Erev Tov, it's because that's when the light and dark are mixing together. Um, so, now, all of a sudden, there is, some in, there is this different body of people, these individuals who are not Israelites, <coughs> called the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude, who go out with them. I always find that very interesting. Are they Egyptians? <coughs> who are they? Who is the Erev Rav? Who is this mass of people? Um, and much livestock of flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, since they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay. Lo yachlu lehit mamea. Nor had they prepared, prepared any provisions for themselves. And then it says... The length of time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430th year, to the very day, all the ranks of the Eternal departed from the land of Egypt. That was for the Eternal a night of vigil, Leil Shmurim, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, that same night as the Eternals, one of vigil for all the children of Israel throughout the ages. And then it goes on to now tell the laws of Passover. Um, 
and I don't think we'll have time to, to, to read all this. And it just keeps explaining how you're going to do this, who's part of this. We have so much to talk about. Um, but I wanted to hear your reflections and reactions to hearing that story. Does it ever say that they, they tell Pharaoh that they won't be back? Moses says, you're not going to see my face again. Okay. Oh, that they're just... That they're not just going out for the festival. Nope, they never say it. They just go. And they leave. I mean, think about the... I guess what I wanted to communicate by reading all this aloud was the panic and urgency. The, that they're escaping in the middle of the night. Um, that this is not, this is not some um, uh, orderly and measured victory march. Or this is, I'm, I'm struck by that as I read it today. Uh, that that they, they grab their kneading bowls, they're, and they're supposed to actually mark this occasion by eating in a hurry. They stay up all night. They borrow stuff from the Egyptians. They say, can I, and then they, they just get the hell out of there, along with a whole bunch of other people who are leaving in the midst of this catastrophe. It's, um, it's very intense. Uh, and um, again, this is how God does things? You know, or... Is this how things happen? You know, is, is this the reality principle at work? You know, where you grab whatever you can and just get the hell out of there. It reminds me of, um, um, you know, God forbid it's, anybody should ha have to do this, and yet it happens all the time. When I remember many years ago when I helped a friend whose uh, husband was abusive, and I drove to their house, and she piled the kids into the car, little kids, and we drove away. They didn't have anything. You know, that's what happens when women go to women's shelters or when It's like, you just leave it all and you get the hell out of there because you finally have an opening to do it. And that's what this reminds, reminds me of. Um, I was thinking about that. And it requires some faith that you're going to be okay in the next yeah. place. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, how would, you, how would you even get yourself to... I know. And things have to be so bad <clears throat> right. where you are. So bad. Now we're talking about any refugee. Mm -hmm. You know. Why would they leave home? Mm -hmm. And after you left, you wish you could go back. Yeah. You say, what did I do? That's the story here. Mm -hmm. What the hell happened? What am I doing here? This is horrible. I don't have enough to eat. I don't have enough to drink. Everybody you know, I'm like, my, my home, I left everything. Anything, I could just carry it. It's like a horrible. Mm -hmm. So... Again, she ever, had she ever left before? No. And uh, I don't know. I was just I, I was fortunate to be able to help because that that was the end, you know, of an abusive marriage, um, and life went on in good ways. And there's yet, a, there's a great song that George Strait sang. Just one verse is, "What a rotten day this turned out to be." I still can't believe she leaves so easily. She just got all her things, threw them into a pile, and she loaded a car and said, after a while. She had done that before, but this time she didn't cry. And she left without crying. So, I don't know. It's a great song. Anyway, George Strait? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's a great, it's a great song. I'll look it up. Thank she you. didn't cry. This time she mm -hmm. didn't cry. This time she didn't cry. Mm -hmm. She screwed up her courage and 
left. And then you have to, you have to give up. You have to, you have to give up so much. You have to give up so much. Um, I guess that's another level of resonance of this story. Once we get beyond our debate about whether God is good or bad, mm-hmm. or in between, or what the hell that all's about, then there's the story itself mm-hmm. that talks about human reality. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, is this incorporating randomness? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that the issue is not. In, we can sit here in comfort and discuss the nature of God. Mm-hmm. whether we like this God or not. Right. But then when you take the story and you enter into it sort of like emotionally, this is about people running for their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm sure I'm not alone. I heard stories from my grandmother about how she left Russia during the pogroms. Yeah. So that stuff feels very real to me. Yeah. You know, she, I don't think she really wanted to go on a boat Across the ocean, you know, right. she was young and terrified, and right. I'm, I'm sure we've all heard these stories. So we've heard they're these, real. They're real stories, and the residue lasts mm-hmm. generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I'm thinking of my grandma, who um, whose mother told her to shield her little sister Esther. My grandmother was Ethel, and I only know like the broadest outlines of the story, um, because there was gunfire. It was World War One. It was like I just know, you know, I don't know. But when they finally got out of there and came to the U.S., um, those two sisters had like what we would call a pathological bond. <laughs> you know, it's like oh my God, like Esther and Ethel. You know. Uh, and, and uh, that's what I was thinking. But that is my, I, I don't suffer from PTSD. I've, been, I've never been in a war zone. I've led a, this charmed life in so many ways. Uh, but even I understand how generational trauma is uh, passed on. Think about, think about this and then have some sympathy for these people wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Um, wow, yeah. I, I would like to read a poem. That was, with her permission, that was written by Desiree. Do you have permission? Sure. That is, um, it's called In the Voice of an Unknown Slave. I ran so fast I couldn't look over my shoulder. I ran so fast I didn't feel my legs. I ran so fast a child clinging to my hip, thought we, like birds, were flying. I ran so fast, I outran my fear. When we reached the sea, I just kept running. We were running for our lives with nothing more than what we could carry on our backs. We left our homes, our community, Everything we knew, always the stranger. That was long ago, but you must not forget. When you see the refugee washed ashore on rafts, 
through waters that did not part. Remember me, your ancestor, a slave. Remember the people of your tribe when you see the refugee children hungry for their mothers and fathers who did not survive, looking to the sky for manna that does not fall. Remember where you came from. The eternal freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. When you see the refugee today, remember this. They are the stranger, and you are free. The hands of free people are mighty, and yours are the outstretched arms. Run to them. Sounds so much better when you make it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, thank Desiree. You. Thank you. Let me say two things to, to conclude, but let that be our, let that be where we leave things. Where I want to say is that, and that's why when you take the Torah as a whole, this whole story is being set up so that we will tell our children, and then as the Torah repeats dozens of times, so that we will not mistreat the stranger in our midst. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing has this purpose, and it's explicit. Uh, so that we will, we will remember what it feels like. It says, do not oppress the stranger. It says a couple of portions from now, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. And Desiree expressed it perfectly. Uh, um, and I also, you know, it's as real as can be right now. Um, I mean, right now, our current pharaoh is standing at the Mexican border, gloating, you know, and vilifying and demonizing and everything that pharaoh does uh, to turn the Israelites into subhuman chattel. Uh, you know, right out of the pharaoh playbook. It occurred to me when I was reading it, I think you wrote this when we had on our minds the Syrian refugees. Oh, and when we looked into Syria in October from the Golan Heights and thought about that country ripped to shreds by its own leader um, of the, you know, generation, it was mind-boggling. Um, So it's important not to, even while we dig in deep to uh, the individual words, and they, it's important also not to lose the forest for the trees. And this, that's the, so that poem expresses the purpose of retelling this story. And that's the story at every level. Every level. Every level. Thank you. Thank you, Desiree. Thank you, Carol. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go. I have